We're starting in Revelations chapter 1, verse 1, and it reads as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The first words in this chapter says the revelation of Jesus Christ. This sermon is not about revelation, but it is about revealing who Jesus is. The author of the book of Revelation, of course, is John. And the book of Revelation is an interesting book as it compares to the other books that John wrote. Again, this is not about Revelation. When we look at the Gospel of John and we compare it to the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, you know these two other two books start off with a genealogy and a lineage of God. It talks about who, who begat who, begat who, begat who, and then it was Jesus. But you know, when you go to John, the Gospel of John, verse 1 starts off like this. In the beginning was the Word. The beginning of what? The beginning of earth? The beginning of creation? The beginning of existence? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him... Nothing was made that was made. John has three other books, John 1, John 2, chapter, and John 3. And the theme of these books deal with the character of God. In fact, from these books, we, we learn that God is love. So we, we look at the writings of John, and he says some real significant things about Jesus. Number one, his purpose, his purpose is to prove that Jesus was God. So he says, from the beginning, Jesus existed with God. Let's move on in Revelations here. We're down in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who was to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's going to be our theme today. He loved us. Number two, he washed us from our sins by his own blood. Just take that and set aside. That's our template today. We're jumping down to verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion, tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In essence, he was exiled because of the word of God. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I'm going to take you on a tangent now. Because this is a significant saying that John is stating. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The easy part of this is to figure out which was the Lord's day. If you look from Genesis to Revelation, the only, there's only one day that God calls his day. And it's a Sabbath day. So on a Sabbath day, John is in the spirit. But what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? I was in the spirit. So we go back to the book of John to see what he meant by that. And we're going to go back to John chapter 14. And we're going to read the sayings of Jesus right before he was leaving. This is John chapter 14. Verses 16 through 18, and it reads like this. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, 
that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and most of all, and will be in you. Jesus continues his conversation in chapter 15, when he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Out me you can do nothing. Hmm. You know, Paul takes this theme as well. We look at Romans 8, chapter 1. And Romans 8, chapter 1 starts off like this. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says why. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, there's no condemnation. How does that relate to abiding in Jesus? Well, let's read on. Do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 5 gives us a better idea. For those who live according to the flesh, catch this, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. In essence, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You know, Paul still, he embellishes this even more. He looks in, he, he says this in, in Galatians 5. And here he actually defines, he defines the flesh and he defines the spirit. And it reads as followed, I say then, walk in the spirit. Now, so we've covered several different thoughts. Abide. First he says, God's spirit will dwell in you. He'll bring to you all truth. Then he says, abide in me and I in you that you can be fruitful. And then through Paul, he says, he says, um, set your mind on the things that are spirit. And, and then here, Paul says, I say then walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another. And this is really important, this last statement here. So that you do not do the things you wish. Now think about that. You ever do things and you ask yourself, why did I do that? Why did I say that? I just kind of came out. He didn't find what the flesh is all about. He says, 19, now the works of the flesh are evidence which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelry, and the likes of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also tell you in time past, that those who 
catch this, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at that list, you will probably find issues are things that can relate to yourself. You know, it's, it's, this is not a true confession here, but you can look within that list and say, oh, wow, mm, I struggle with some of this stuff here. And this is described as the flesh. But then he says this, the fruit of the Spirit, the results of abiding, the results of walking in the Spirit, the results of setting my mind on the Spirit leads to this. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, temperance, and this is how it works. God works from the inside out. God changes you from the inside out. He says, I have to dwell in you so that I can produce the fruit outward. If you do it, it's an outward change. You can sustain for a certain amount of time, but ultimately you will fail. Guaranteed. Because what does Jesus say? Without me, you can do nothing. Going back to Revelations now. I know that was a tangent, but we're going to need those principles as we get down further in this. He says, um, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Tyra, Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. When I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Well, who is that? One like the Son of Man. That is uh, the purpose of our discussion today. He's dressed a certain way. He said he's clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band. He looks like a priest, and the furniture that we're describing is like sanctuary furniture. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. By the way, that's the word of God, Galatians 6. And his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. You ever try looking into the sun? How long can you look into the sun? Not very long, and still be able to see. Well, this being that John is looking at is Jesus. He's the son of God. But he just says, one like the son of man. Where'd that come from? Like the son of man. Not only that, when you look at this, there's only one other being in the whole Bible described like this. And that person's in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We see this being. And it's Daniel's in vision. Chapter 7, verse 9, he says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels a burning fire. And fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. This is God the Father. So God the Father is being described as like God the Son, but they'd say God the Son is like the Son of Man. Now John, being with Jesus, knows that Jesus did not always look this way. If you go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion, and Jesus now is in agony. We looked this up in in Luke 24, and I'm not going to turn to it. But there, we're going to come back to it later. There, Jesus, it says he is sweating great drops of blood. And he's agonizing over over what was happening to him at that time. And, and he said, the spirit of prophecy says he stumbled back to where his disciples were, and he didn't recognize him. His form was so deformed. We're going to come back to that. But we're going to understand, who is the Son of Man? Who is he? Or for us to get a better understanding of him, I'm going to have to take you on a tour. So we're going to go through the Bible, starting with Genesis. So from here, we're going to go to Genesis, and we're going to end up over here in Revelation. Okay, so Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, I believe that with all my heart. I believe he created this world in seven days and that each day he created each successive thing. And that's why we worship on this day today. If you don't believe, he, if you believe in that these one days are a thousand days, you just destroyed this whole Sabbath business. You just really destroyed the foundation of Christianity, really. But God created this world in six days. On the sixth day, if we look at Genesis, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Making man in our image. He didn't say he was going to make gorillas or cats or dogs or whales or baboons in his image. He said he was going to make man in his image, and in his likeness. That's why there's no missing link. There is no link. We are special because God specifically made us. In chapter 2 of Genesis, it has Jesus kneeling down. It says God, but we read in John that it was Jesus. He knelt down and into the dust of the earth, and he formed man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Pretty awesome, huh? He took man, put him to sleep, pulled out a rib, and made Eve. Then he took him, put him in the garden of Eden, made this beautiful garden. And he said, you can eat of all these leaves, all these trees, all the fruit. You can eat of everything in the garden except this one tree. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said this. He said, the day that you eat of this, you will maybe die. He said, you will surely, without, a matter of a, without any doubt, you will die. Okay. Chapter 3 of Genesis. Eve finds herself by the tree. She gets into discussion with this serpent. Somehow gets the fruit, bites the fruit, and something happens. She goes looking for Adam. I tell my classes all the time, I said, Eve did not become a demon when she bit into that fruit. 
She didn't say, I'm going to kill Atom. She didn't say that. She, she went looking for her husband because she thought she was going to give him something that was going to make him better. Okay, in Romans 5, it says, let's see if I can say this correctly, by one man's sin, death entered into the world. Well, how come it doesn't say by one woman? Huh? How come it doesn't say that? But it doesn't. It says by one man's sin, death entered into the world. When Adam saw Eve, when Adam saw Eve coming with the fruit, he knew exactly what she had done. He knew exactly that she was going to die. And he had to make a decision. And he said in his heart, I love this woman. And I want to die with her. So he willingly, not being deceived, he ate of the fruit. He put her over God. God says this. You look at Genesis 3. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, he's, he's now talking to each one of them. He said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. To the wife, Eve. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. To the serpent, he says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And to the devil that was in the serpent, he says this, and I will put enmity, division between you and the woman between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He, being Christ, was going to bruise the head of the devil. And that was the first promise in the Bible of a Redeemer. Now we look for between chapters 3 and 4. We don't see this ritual given, but there, somewhere, some, somewhere in the pages there, Though it's not written, God sat down with him and told him, I want you to bring a lamb. I want you to bring a lamb without spot or blemish, and I want you to sacrifice this lamb for me. And every time you sacrifice this lamb, it's going to remind you that there's a redeemer to come. There's a redeemer to come, okay? And so, Adam and Eve have their first kids, Cain and Abel. Cain's a tiller of the ground. Abel's a shepherd. And so, it's time for the sacrifice. Cain gathers his fruit. Now you have to remember, Cain is a, a gardener, a planter, a farmer. And this is like really close to creation. Can you imagine what those tomatoes look like? <clears throat> Sweet as all get out. Can you imagine? He must have had a lot of pride in his fruit. He spent hours nurturing the ground. And, and so he brings his best and he puts it on the altar of God. <clears throat> and God rejects it. Abel, on the other hand, takes a lamb. A lamb without spot or blemish. He sacrifices the lamb. 
And he puts it on the altar, and God accepts it. Abel, sacrifice accepted, Cain's rejected, but Cain brought his best. Why do you think God rejected it? Well, we think about it. Cain brought his best. But this sacrifice, this this coming of the Redeemer, had nothing to do with Cain's best, or your best, or my best. It had everything to do with the one who was qualified to stand in our place. And so Cain was trying to use his his merits for, for salvation. Abel was following directions, okay? That didn't make Cain very happy. Cain and Abel have a discussion. Cain killed Abel. God cursed Cain and banished him. Let's turn to chapter 6 of Genesis. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. By the way, the sons of God are those who continue to worship God. The sons of men are the descendants of Cain. Verse 5, this is the result. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in earth, and that every intent of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought was evil. And this, verse 6, really catches me. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Can you imagine the Lord saying to himself, I am sorry I made you. Whoa. Well, God decided to destroy the earth, destroy man. But Noah found in the eyes of the Lord. And so God chose Noah. And he said, Noah, I want you to build me an ark. And I want you to collect these animals. Then I want you to preach for 120 years. And I want you to bring as many people in that ark to be saved. Now, I've always said to myself that if I was choosing, a, choosing an evangelist, I wouldn't choose Noah. Because Noah didn't convert anybody. The only people he saved were his family. And now that I'm older and I have my own family, I go, Lord, if I could just save my family. That's enough. You know, so I guess Noah's okay. So his wife and his three sons and their wives got into the ark. Flood came, destroyed everybody. Got, after the flood, he, God sends them out and says, be fruitful and multiply. So they go out and they're fruitful and they're multiplying and multiplying and they forget God. They forget who he is. And God has to go to plan B. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis 12 where God chooses Abram, Abraham that we know of. He says, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And this is the special promise here. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because again, there's the promise of the Redeemer. We're looking ahead for the Redeemer to come. Abraham is faithful. He takes his group and he leaves his family. 
And he wanders around and wanders around. And 25 years later, he has the promised son, Isaac. And then he gets this word from God. God calls him up and says, hey, Moses, I mean, sorry, hey, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the promised one, and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him for me. Can you imagine? So Abraham, sorry, I got Moses on my brain. So Abraham takes his son. And he gets his servants, they get the wood, and they get the fire, and they take off. And his son says, Dad, I see the wood. I see the fire. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, the Lord will provide. They get to Mount Moriah. Abraham tells him that he's a sacrifice, binds him, puts him on the altar, and gets ready to kill him. And God stops him. He said, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Now catch this. He looks up, and there's a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. He takes that ram, and that ram becomes the substitute. Okay? We're still looking forward to the Redeemer. We're looking, someone who will, looking for someone who will take our place. Isaac grows up, has a family. He uh, has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. He sends the 12, down, 12 sons down to Egypt. And uh, they stay there. They proliferate to make a big nation. And before long, they're enslaved. And God says, okay, it's time. At the fullness of time, God says it's time to let him go. So he sends Moses. And they go through ten plagues, or nine plagues. And these nine plagues, if you look at it, they all affected only the Egyptians. But then that last plague, God says, this plague will affect everybody who do not obey. And so he says to um, Moses, this is what I want the people to do. I want them to take a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish. I want them to sacrifice that lamb, and then I want them to take the blood, and I want them to put it on the lamp, the doorpost, and the lamppost. And when I send my destroying angel by, he will come to the front of that house. And if he sees the blood, he will pass over it. But you know what happened. Uh, that, was, that was it for Pharaoh. He let them go. Now, I'm leaving out a lot of information, but I'm giving you the gist of what's happening. He lets them go. They wander out into the wilderness. And in Exodus 25, God comes to Moses again and says, I want you guys to make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with you. And then he gives them specific instructions on how the sanctuary was to be built and the, and the ceremonies that were supposed to go there. There were three compartments, outer compartment, middle compartment, we call it the holy place. And then the third part compartment was called the most holy place. In the middle compartment was three pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, a lampstand, and the altar of incense. In the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this sermon is not about the sanctuary. We could spend the whole time on this. We're just flying through. Hitting certain points, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. In the, at the base of the covenant, 
This, this base was made out of acacia wood covered with gold. In there were several items, but one of the items was the Ten Commandments that was written with the finger of God. On top of that compartment was this slab of wood covered with gold, and it was called the mercy seat. On top of that were these two seraphim angels looking down, and in between those angels was the very presence of God. God tells Moses, look, if one of my people sin, this is what I want him to do. I want him to get a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish. I want him, the sinner, to bring that lamb to the sanctuary. The priest meets him at the sanctuary. He then confesses his sin over the head of the lamb. Then he, the sinner, takes the life of the lamb. The sinner cuts the nick of the lamb. The priest catches the blood, and he takes that blood into the holy place. Leviticus 11 states that the blood represented the life of that animal. Okay? He takes that blood, he sprinkles it on the furniture, and he sprinkles it on the veil. And every day, as sinners confessed their sins, this went on and on and on. But then one day out of the year, one day out of the year, the sanctuary was cleansed. In essence, all the sins that were transferred to the temple were removed. And this day was called the Day of Atonement. And if you look at that word, atonement, and you break it down, it looks like at-one-ment. And that was the purpose of God. He was bringing his people back to oneness with himself. We're still looking forward to the Redeemer. All these symbolisms looked forward to the Redeemer. We go to Daniel 9 and look in chapter 24, and we get this 70-week prophecy. And this 70-week prophecy tells us that at a particular time, the Messiah was to be anointed, was to come on the scene. We look at Isaiah 7, 14, and it says that a virgin would have a son, and that son would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And we look at Micah 2, 5, 2, and it says that son would be born in Bethlehem. And so we go to the New Testament, and we look at the Gospels. In the New Testament now, we see the birth of Jesus. We see, we see uh, Mary and Joseph in Nazareth, but they're going to, to Bethlehem for tax reasons. And she's like nine months pregnant. Does that make any sense to you? But they go there. And as they, as, as they get there, she delivers. And, she, and so the prophecy is fulfilled. He's born in Bethlehem. They raise him for 30 years. And at the fullness of time that God had already designated, Jesus leaves his parents and he goes find his cousin, John. Now this is really interesting. John, if we look at chapter John, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, 
Jesus and John had never talked, never even met. But here it says here, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Jesus starts having this conversation with John. He says, now I want you to baptize me. And John is saying, me baptize you? No, no, you need to baptize me. And it goes like this. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In essence, Jesus was fully aware of the prophecies and his timetables. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And I asked my class this morning this question. I said, why would the Son of God need the Spirit of God? Why did God pour his Spirit on Jesus? He's God, right? He's 100% God, but he's 100% man. Now, I don't understand that, and I cannot explain that. But from, from what I understand is that Jesus has now put away his godliness. And the reason why he put away his godliness is so that he could represent you and I fully. We had this big discussion, was he God, was he man? Was he, well, if he was God, how can he be tempted? We see this interaction going on because after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and there the devil tempted him. And one of the temptations was this. He had not eaten for 40 days. He had not eaten for 40 nights. So he was starving in his humanity. He was hungry. Give you guys three days, okay? Not 40. He was hungry. And the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, why don't you change that rock into bread? Now, I don't know if you've ever been tempted to change rock into bread, but I haven't because I can't. Why was that such a significant temptation to Jesus? Because he could, if he took his godliness. But think about it. If he used his godliness to help him personally with his experience down here, how could he represent us? Because he wouldn't have been like us. You know, Bible says he was the second Adam. Okay? Can you tempt God? Can you get God to sin? Hebrews 6. What does it say? I think it's Hebrews 4. And it goes like this. Ah. Sorry. Verse 15. For we do not have a, not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Who are they talking about, by the way? Is this our Jesus? 
He, was, he, he has our weaknesses? And he could have sinned? Is that what it says? No. Couldn't have been that way. But Jesus took on humanity. And he put aside his godliness. Some people get this confused. They say, well, if he did that, then he must not have been God. That's why people say, well, he's not God. He was man. What was the purpose of Jesus living a perfect life? It was for our example. How did he live a perfect life? Through the power of the Spirit. We just had this big discussion. How did John say that you and I overcome? By abiding. By abiding in him. By his Spirit living in us. Jesus was no different. It was the power of the Spirit in him that gave him the ability to overcome. He utilized everything that we have. Do you believe that? He utilized all the power that we have to be perfect, to be to overcome. So what happens now? Jesus is filled with the Spirit of God. And then what happens? We look up in John, uh, Matthew, excuse me, 4, 23. After he got back from the wilderness, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptic, and paralytic. He healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond Jordan. All of a sudden, he's doing all these great miracles, and it was through the power of the Spirit of God that was in him. Then we come to some interesting statements of his. In chapter 8, it says, Then a certain scribe came, chapter 8, verse 19. A certain scribe came unto him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no way to lay his head. What? Son of Man? Where did you get that from? Why is he calling himself the Son of Man? We look in chapter 9. They bring a paralytic to him. And Jesus comes up to that paralytic and he says, Your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes and the Pharisees say, Oh, in their minds, oh, he, that's blasphemy. He can't say that. And then verse 4, he says, Why do you think evil in your heart? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, there it goes again, has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and walk and go to your house. Son of Man, where'd that come from? It goes on. He's talking to his disciples. And he says to them, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Again, he's calling himself the Son of Man. Where did he get that from? We look at, the, we look at John chapter 1. And this is the experience with John the Baptist. He just baptized Jesus. And he, it, we're reading with... Uh, uh, we're reading uh, chapter 1, verses 33 and 34. He says, I did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is John the Baptist saying, Jesus is the Son of God. We look elsewhere. We look back in Matthew when Jesus was baptized and um, when the Holy Spirit descended upon me, it's verse 16 and 17, uh, chapter 3. It says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son and who I am well pleased. Even God the Father calls him the son of God. We look at Luke chapter 1. When the angel came and talked to Mary, she's telling, he's telling Mary about what to be expected. And, he, and it says like this in verse 30, chapter 1, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Here's Gabriel who's the highest angel in heaven saying, Jesus is the Son of God. One more. Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, there's a story. Jesus has been on the lake. There's been a big storm. Uh, he did a miracle, and, and uh, the, the, the storm went away. And they arrive to the other side of the, of the lake, and there they run into a madman. And we read this in verse 6. It says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you. By God, that you do not torment me. Even the demon says he's the son of God. But Jesus himself, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. He keeps calling himself the son of man. Why? Why? We get to the Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. We find this in Matthew 26. Jesus comes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm going to read. This is chapter 26, verse 36. Jesus came and with him to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Did you hear that? Who are we talking about here? Was that about Jesus? Jesus was sorrowful and deeply distressed? No, no, Jesus was never distressed. He was never sorrowful. But, but that's what it says. And listen to what he says. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And he's talking to his three disciples. Stay here and watch with me. I am so distressed. I'm so discouraged even to death. Please stay here 
and pray with me. What was happening to Jesus? What was happening to Jesus was your sins and my sins were being applied to him. And Isaiah 59.2 says, sin separates us from God. Okay? So God was separating himself from Jesus. And Jesus, in his humanity, and even in his godliness, had never been away or out of the presence of God, God the Father. And so he's experienced this, this big emotional time. And you can tell, listen to what he says in his prayer. So he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Uh, Jesus, are you getting cold feet? Oh, no. But then he says, not my will, but thine. But just for him to say that, if there's another way for a man to be saved, please allow that to happen. But, but, but not my will and thy will. We go on and, and Luke talks about the great drops of blood that, that fell from his face. He was beginning to die before any nails was nailed into his hands. He was beginning to die. They take him. They try him. They scourge him. They beat him. They humiliated him. They put a cross on his shoulder. And he took him to Calvary. And he hung on the cross only for a few hours. Now the purpose of the cross was to prolong death. It wasn't unheard of for a criminal to be on the cross for a week before he died. But in a few hours, Jesus was dead. He was dead. And what killed him? Was it the nails in his hands? Was it, was it his blood loss? No, it was your sins and mine. It was a separation from God. That's what killed him. That's what killed Jesus. They put him in a tomb. And I just want to mention this one thing. While he was on the cross, in understanding his words, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? This is his humanity. This is his humanity talking. So he dies. They put him in a tomb. He's in the grave for three days. Sunday, he rises. He's risen. The disciples are in hiding. They're in their apartment. They're fearful that the rulers are going to come get them. But two of them head off home. And they're heading to Emmaus. And we picked this up in Luke 24. Verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of a conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, 
the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and the other rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We jump down to verse 25. It says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In essence, he just did what I just did. Only that he did it backwards. He just said, do you remember all these? Do you remember the sanctuary? Do you, do you remember the lamb? Do you, do you? He just went through the whole process and showed how it pointed to himself. They get to the house. They sit down to eat. Jesus is breaking bread, but those, their eyes are still restrained. But he opens their eyes, and they see it's Jesus. They stand up to touch him, and he disappears. And they say to themselves, didn't our heart burn within us as he spoke to us? And they got up, and they ran all the way back, that seven miles to Jerusalem, to meet with the other disciples in the room. So can you imagine, they, they arrive into the room, and they're all excited. Jesus is alive, he's alive, this is awesome, we just saw him. And the other guys are going, yeah, right, okay, you, I don't know what you're talking about. But we picked this up in Luke, chapter 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed that they had seen a spirit and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubt arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Okay? Now the book of John gives us a little different insight. Because John states that Thomas one of the disciples was not there. And we're quickly, we'll turn to John. It's the last chapter in the book of John because it talks about him coming in, verse 24, chapter 20. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve was not with him when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. And so he said to them, listen, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, if you grew up on Uncle Maxwell's stories, I know I did, the name of this chapter was Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. But you look, when you actually look and see what Thomas was asking, he was asking for what God had already given as proof to the other disciples. What did he say? He said, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Put your finger in my side. And that's all Thomas was asking for. Unless I put my hands in his, in his hands and put my finger in his side, I'm not going to believe. Verse uh, 26. And after eight days, the disciples again were, in, were inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the door being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your fingers here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be 
unbelieving, but believing. In Acts first, it, it talks about Jesus ascending up into heaven. And he goes and he meets the Father. And this reunion is actually recorded in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And listen to how Daniel records this, because this is pretty awesome. He says, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Where did Daniel get that? One like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. He, by the way, restored the dominion that Adam lost. That all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is in heaven, and one day he's going to come back for a people who are in the Spirit, who set their minds on the Spirit of God, who abide in the Spirit of God, who walk in the Spirit of God. John 16 says this, that his Spirit is poured out through all the world, and he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So he comes, and he, and he, and he gets his own, and because of that chapter in John 16, there will be people who responded to the Holy Spirit but never knew the gospel story. Can you imagine how that's going to be? They, they, arrive, they, they arrive in heaven. I'm serious. They lived up to everything that the Holy Spirit told them to, to do. They responded to the Holy Spirit. God will take them to heaven and they will get there and they will not know the story. And so they will see Adam and, 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 and they go, whoa, who's this big guy? And, 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 and talk to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and they will come and they will see Jesus. And they will talk to Jesus but, but there will be something different about him and they say, Jesus, what is the meaning of those prints in your hands and in your feet. Hear me, church. And then Jesus will explain to them how he, being God, being the word from the beginning, became man. And he lived his perfect life through the power of God's power. But he sacrificed his life on the cross so that you and me could live with him forever. And those prints on his hand and his feet will always be there. As a reminder of the cost of sin, he will always maintain those prints forever. That's why we call him the Son of Man. I just, I just get overwhelmed when I think about that. When I think about God becoming man so that I could live with him forever, I can't imagine how he loves us. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, our joy is reading your story. 
Our joy is, is, is understanding how much you love us, how much you gave to save us. Our joy, Lord, is, is, is fulfilled in your death. And even though you said, oh, I don't really want to do this, but Lord, thy will, not mine. You went through it anyway. And because of that, we have the opportunity of living eternity with you. Praise God. Praise your name, Lord. Thank you, Father, for this great sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.